Um, I've got the sort of joy of going through Nehemiah 3, so if, if it's your first time here, we're actually going through the book of Nehemiah, and we've done chapter 1, uh, chapter 2 as well. You can actually catch up if you go on the Pearly uh, website, um, Pearly Baptist website, I listened to the podcast version of Chris's uh, last two weeks ago, loved it, um, so that was really cool, and so you can catch up there. We're looking at Nehemiah, um, I'm looking at chapter 3 today. Um, and we won't read it in, you know, in, in great detail just because it lists names of people who are all part of building the war. I will refer to it quite a bit, but um, that's where we're at. So if it's your first time and you're sort of going, okay, cool, we're in chapter three, but I've missed a couple. Just a quick sort of run through. The book of Nehemiah uh, begins in 446 BC. And essentially Nehemiah, who's a Jewish man born in captivity, he has an official government role where he tastes food for the king. He hears about the plight of Jerusalem and suddenly starts to sort of feel this burden in his heart. God begins to work a burden in his heart for Jerusalem. At the time, the city lay in ruins and so was vulnerable to enemies. And there was no temple, no wars. And so it was a place where it was in constant danger. And so, uh, you know, Nehemiah starts to develop this, this heart. In chapter 1, verses 3, we're told that Jerusalem at the time was a place of of disgrace and the place that was broken down. King Cyrus then gives this order, um, or the okay, so to speak, that we can basically repatriate Jerusalem um, from Babylon. Um, but now, essentially, 91 or so years has passed, and people are still in harm's way. Um, it seems as no one's been able to galvanize the people and make Jerusalem a place of honor again, and Nehemiah wanted to. So his story of God beginning to work in his heart, a desire, a, a burden, if you like, for Jerusalem, is what we read in the book of Nehemiah. That's pretty much what, what we read there. It's a great book about leadership. It's a great book about discovering God's call for your life and how God calls people. Um, and so it's something I think everyone should pay attention to, at least today. Chapter 1 details um, how sort of God's work always begins with individuals. So yes, God calls groups, but often... He always sets a heart alight for him or for an issue, and slowly that grows and it grows and it grows. And Nehemiah was that person we learned in chapter one. God set his heart alight, and then slowly it started to, started to grow. It is interesting to just know, even from the offset, that sometimes God's calling for us is often found in things that maybe break our heart, but don't break other people's heart, things that we really care about that other people sometimes don't. But Nehemiah essentially gets this heart for people, starts praying, uh, and then for four months, essentially, nothing happened. He's just praying and planning for this opportunity to go to Jerusalem and maybe start to do something there. In chapter 2, Nehemiah gets a chance. So the king notices that he's sort of still, he's quiet, he's not himself, asks him what's going on. Nehemiah explains in fear. He says, this is what's on my heart. The king was pleased with the fact that he had answers. And so the king says, go ahead, go to Jerusalem. I'm going to give you some help, in fact. Go start building that place again. And he starts by asking God, what's the vision? God gives him a vision. And now we reach chapter 3. And he's got a vision, people are mobilized, and he's about to start rebuilding this um, wall. That's a quick run-through, but I hope we're sort of like, okay, cool. So, where are we right now? We're about to start building a wall. Trump's dream, of course, um, if you follow Donald Trump. Now, we won't read it in detail, like I said, but it's really, really important, I think, this chapter. 
Because from the offset, if you've gone ahead and read it already, you might just look at it and say, well, hey, it's a list of names of people who built a wall. Cool. Like, that's really good. Great, great job. But I think there's a, a really strong message for the church, which I hope we'll receive today. Now, I joined this church, like I said, a few months ago, and the first thing that actually impressed me about the church was the church bulletin, right? Uh, so I sat there, and before the preach started, the sermon started, someone came up and started reading what the church was doing, and I thought, wow, there's a lot happening in this church, right? Like, youth day, this person's day, this is happening. I actually, even hearing about a remembrance service once, I was like, oh, that's new. I've never heard about that. So this church is doing lots and lots of different things, right? Uh, there's the youth ministry, there's the sort of singles, there's all these different things happening. Then I heard about a church building project, and I thought, wow, that's amazing. That's another thing happening. And there's just so much going on in this church. And I started doing some research. So found out that this church informally began in, was it 1908? Oh, so on the website it says 08. So we ought to have a meeting because you said six, you said four. You, who knows? I suppose it's informal, so, you know, it's, it's okay. Which means it's been here for 118 years. Isn't that crazy? I think my maths might be correct. I don't know. In fact, funny enough, this week, I was in SOAS, I was meeting the chairman, uh, who was a lord, Lord Hastings, and in our conversation, I mentioned Pearly Baptist, and he was like, I was there. No, not 118 years ago. He was saying, when he was 22, he was invited here by the youth minister to give a sermon to the youth. So he said, and I think, I think he's in his 60s now, so he said about 40, well, what's that? But something, a long time ago, he was here, preaching to the youth. And I thought, wow, so much history in this church. But there's also a danger, I think, when you have a church that's been around for a while. And I think you all know what I'm talking about. It's very easy to start to sort of settle in, become a bit complacent, you know, and just sort of go with the flow, so to speak. The church has been going on for a long time. It will carry on once I'm gone, you know, just sort of fit in, as it were. But I think if God's going to continue to move us forward, sometimes we have to be revived. Sometimes our hearts need to be set alight again. And this is why I hope we'll pick from chapter 3. Because chapter 3 isn't just a list of names. It's a detailed account of people who are involved in this colossal building project. Right? It details who worked where, what they did. Essentially, they're digging holes, they're laying bricks, and it lists all the individual names. What's interesting is everybody, if you look at that list, came together to build this war. Chapter, uh, verse 5 speaks about some noblemen, if you like, who didn't get involved, some elitists who didn't get involved. But beyond those people who didn't get involved, everybody else came together. The smallest, the greatest, you know, folks who were sort of had clout, folks who didn't, ordinary people, common people, all of them came together to say, we want to build this great war, if you like, that Nehemiah has, has, has got us excited about. What I noted when I was reading this was the sort of warm, excited faith that sort of bound this group of random people together, this desire they had to see this war built. It was kind of endearing to go, wow, that's so lovely. It took me back to sort of, you know, when I first started one of the organizations I look after now, when we were just five people, and I was early and sending WhatsApp messages about what it was going to be, and people are kind of, how can I help? And we did everything together. We'd go to dinner together. We'd go to Nando's and, and sketch plans. And that sort of early excitement of starting something, it made me remember that. 
Naturally, you grow, you get some staff, you delegate, you start to have an organization, and things start to look very, very different. And I think the church sometimes can fall into this danger, if you like, where it becomes more like an organization and less like an organism, where we get into the mechanics and the sort of you know, the, the habit of just doing things and that sort of excited, you know, boundy sort of tigger-like energy isn't there anymore. And this is one of the key things I think chapter 3 really mentions. Because what's really interesting about this long list of people who are all getting involved in this great building project is everyone has a job, right? Everyone's doing something. There's folks right at the beginning building the sheep's gate. There's folks helping out, just building the wall. No one's jealous of another person. Everyone's excited about their position. In fact, some folks are so excited, they actually say they want to build in two spaces. So they say, I don't want to just build here. I also want to help out in that part of the wall as well, which would have been very difficult. Everybody had their part. As you read through the names, it kind of makes you wonder, why can't the church be like this? Why can't we have this sort of excited togetherness, this sort of homothady and the one-mindedness that seemed to galvanize these people. Because if you think about it, God is building his church now. He's transforming lives, redeeming people. He's got this great thing he's doing on the earth, this great vision, this epic story that he's writing. And essentially, the question we have to ask ourselves today as we read this list is say, where do I fit in? What brick am I holding? Where on the wall am I helping out to build something wonderful here? Everyone has a part. Everyone respects the calling of another. And essentially, everyone's coming together in this wonderful way. And, and, and here's something that's so fascinating too. If you think about it, eight months prior to this wonderful union of people building, Nehemiah was something like 700 miles away in tears about the plight of Jerusalem. And now we have him initially in tears, but now he's got this, this army of people, all excited, really, really motivated to build this war. It shows you what God can do with a man's tears, right, when he's really burdened. Now, the one, the one question I had as well as I was reading this was, well, how did he get so many people excited about a war? I know... In America, they love wars. I get that. But I just thought, it's just the war. Why are they all so excited? Got all these different people like, yeah, we're going to build a war. And if you read it, it just it reads like that, doesn't it? Everyone's so pumped about this war. I suppose there's a simple answer, which is all of them had a personal or would have had a personal conviction about the importance of completing this war. Like Nehemiah, as he shared his vision to the people, all of them would have been galvanized equally by the importance or the, the sheer enormity of the task, the importance of building this war. All of them knew that their place was important in the completion of the war. And one of the clues I think we get about this is, is because two comes before three. Obviously, I'm not speaking numerically here. I mean, chapter two comes before chapter three. In chapter two, we get the vision that's spoken about. Nehemiah articulates why it's important, what he wants to do. He articulates his passion, his, his sort of excitement is, is, is made clear. And from that sort of inner working, his hands begin to work after. 
And for all of us in here who are thinking, where do I fit it into God's plan, especially with this church? Well, first we have to have something in our heart bubbling about what God's doing. You've got to get excited about what God's doing on this earth. As we do that, the excitement in our heart then turns to work in our hands. And that, that process, if you like, I suppose, is why we see this excitement in people. Unless there's a vision in our hearts, there's a genuine desire in our heart, the work of God simply won't continue with us. And I was reflecting on this, took me back to Revelations 2, when Jesus is given a vision, speaking to the church in Ephesians or in Ephesus, and he commends them for all their work. He says, listen, you guys have got a packed church bulletin, yeah? Doing well, lots of different things going on. And he says, but I have one charge against you. And the charge was what? They had abandoned their first love. It's like they had become so sort of into doing things that the genuine joy, that sort of Jesus joy that's meant to exude as we serve him, seemed to be missing. And I just think this is, again, why I speak about this. It's the danger, right, that churches have as they get older and they kind of start to mature. They become more organization-like and less like organisms. What I love about chapter 3 is you've got a people who are excited, who are excited about their role, and who are getting involved. But also, you can, you can kind of tell that it isn't just Nehemiah that's sort of getting them going. But there's a genuine sort of belief in each person that their role was important. I think as a church, when we serve God in this way, when we ensure that our motivation for doing things isn't just kind of routine or responsibility or duty, but a genuine joy to serve the Lord, to see his sort of plans come to life. When we do that, then I think we're fortified from fatigue. I think we're, we protect ourselves from becoming disenfranchised, tired, disillusioned, because one of the things that impressed me about this church, again, before I joined, was the leadership, right? So watch the leaders and saw how they operate. Obviously, I've been in church leadership before, so I, I, I'm always kind of watching leadership, not in a sort of judgy way. I'm just kind of curious about leadership. I, I find it quite fascinating. And, you, and I think at Purdy Baptist, we're blessed with good leaders. Yeah, I don't think that's weird or sycophantic. It's just the truth, I think. But I think if we do things, everyone in this church, because of the leaders, I think we're in a danger zone. Because at some stage... Some, one of them may not compliment us the right way. Maybe someone doesn't notice our hard work. Maybe someone isn't as grateful as they ought to be. And before you know it, we're sort of disillusioned. We don't care. But when we do things to the glory of God, when we lay our bricks, as it were, because, God, because we want it to be a springboard to really glorify God and to really capture what it is God is doing, well, now we're doing it for the right reasons. And now we can carry on for a lot longer, if you like, than, than we would be able to do Otherwise, the first picture we find that I want to paint, I suppose, with chapter 3 is there are people who are motivated to work and to adulate their brick, albeit a brick, to the glory of God. We all in this church today must work and have work to do to the glory of God. Not for men, not to impress anybody, but to the glory of God. And I love that we list and we see the names because it means God cares. God sees everybody. 
the noble folks who didn't want to get involved, the elitists who thought, not for me, but all the laymen who got involved, God cares. God sees it. Because of time, let's talk about the war, right? Because another reflection I had, again, reading chapter 3 and reading all these names, I thought to myself, I doubt that war is any good. And <laughs> here's why I say that. Well, these aren't like professional war builders. It's not some sort of specialist firm. It's just a random group of people. And I thought, if I was going to build a massive war, who would I want? I want builders, right? We'd go to a space with builders and say, you know, what's the, can I try and get a quote and, you know, haggle and all that sort of stuff. Terrible at haggling. Um, but that's never conversation for another day. I tried to do it once. Like, my dad is always angry that I can't haggle because I'd be like, what's the price they said? I'm like, sounds good. And he's like, no, no, you've got to. <laughs> but, but there was one time, sorry, random aside, but it was, there was one time I went to the market, never again, last, first and last time to be fair, with my dad and he was going to buy a secondhand TV. And my dad's Nigerian. He's sort of, you know, very confident, I suppose. It's the best way to put it. And we went to this market and the, the man had the TV and the man said, uh, it's 200 pounds. My dad was like, 20 pounds. And I thought, what? <laughs> I was so embarrassed. I was just like, this is ridiculous. And the guy, the guy he was haggling with was just like, no. Like, that's just, you're like, no, we're not even meeting in the middle. That's just too far. And my dad was like, cool, and just walked away. And I just was just, just looking back like, sorry, you know, to the guy. But um, yeah, I'm not good at haggling, which is just something interesting to know. But anyways, anyways. What's fascinating about this war is it can't be good because you've got all these random people laying bricks and they're not trained. But I suppose there's a key lesson to learn here for us as a church, which is ministry gifts are very different from callings. We all here, I have no doubt, because I know God, does, he, he delights in giving gifts. I know everyone in this room probably has a unique gifts, gift. Something you can do that other people can't do. Some of us watch... Chris and the singers maybe playing guitar and we're just like, I can, I've tried, I've watched the YouTube video, I just can't do it. Clear gifts. Some of us in here have, we're good with numbers, we all have clear gifts. And if we're honest, we would all probably prefer to just stay in the lane of our gift and just do that. But ministry gifts are very different from callings because we're all called to serve. And there are times where needs arise in the church and we all just need to step forward and serve. And I suppose what's really beautiful about this Shoddy war, where you'd have had someone maybe not getting the right mix and putting like, you know, someone maybe getting a bit wonky. What's beautiful about it is it's sort of a monument of a collective effort by a people to honor God. Which means even with its imperfections, it sort of has a beauty to it. Because you've got everyone just coming together, mucking in, and just trying to make something beautiful. Which makes it, in an odd type of way, almost more beautiful than something that would have been done by professionals, no? Because it's all these individuals coming together, all laying their brick and making this beautiful monument to God. I think we can learn from this, in that all of us in this room right now can ask ourselves, how do I, even though I may not have some crazy skill, how can I add something to this great thing that God's doing? How can I in this church just be a part of what's going on? Yes, I may not be super skilled in one area, but how do I add my penny? How do I add my brick? How do I become part of this great work that God is doing? 
I think there's something really, really powerful about thinking about those things. In conclusion, just three things to think about. I love how, in chapter three, God shows, as he demonstrates throughout the whole of the Bible, that he can do extraordinary things through just simple people who just surrender and say, yeah, use me, God. I'll be a part of it. He can do extraordinary things through them. I love how the mundane can become magical when we realize who we're doing it unto. I mean, lame bricks is the most basic thing in the world, right? But when it's part of this epic story God's telling, suddenly it's a magical thing. Likewise, in this church, counseling someone, mentoring somebody, laying the chairs uh, out, picking up dirt. All these things can seem so mundane. When you realize you're doing this to the glory of God, it becomes magical. Lastly, it's that God's building something. And um, we all must work. We all must work. We all must ask ourselves, what can I contribute to this great thing that God's doing? We often are in the middle portion. What do I mean by that? We are the instruments of change, of God's change on this earth. He's going to use us. So I pray that the Spirit teaches us and he helps us come to terms with how we all can play a part in, in making this church and, and, and really making this body um, one that honors God in this way. And I think chapter 3 is really helpful for thinking about some of these things. Should I pray or how does it work? Let me pray. Super. Father, Lord, thank you so much for this moment we've had to just think about your word, about you, about what you're doing on the earth. Father, help us to learn. Just help us, teach us in, in your divine way, Father. Lord, speak to all of us at the point of our needs so we can take this list of names, list of people having a go, and really take the lessons, the, the transformative lessons, Father, from it. Help us, God, God to, to, to really value our contribution. In your epic work, yes, God, you're shifting cultures. You're doing all these, all these wonderful things, big things, God. But help us to see, God, how our contribution matters. How our small act, our prayer, all the little things that we think are so unimportant. Help us to reframe our mindset, to see that it matters. The prayer matters, the counseling matters, the, the service, it all matters. Transform our hearts, Father Lord. Let us be changed by the reading of this word. We pray these things, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.